On this episode, I'm going to read an article that I wrote and published in July 2020 called How Racism Shapes Fashion's Approach to Sustainability. I selected it to be part of this series because at its core, this is an article about my personal relationship and journey with the title Garment Factory Manager. For those of you who do not know, I used to manage a garment factory in Cambodia. Initially, I felt the need to qualify my title to friends and family back home in the US and in the Netherlands. For example, I would emphasize that I managed a sustainability-minded factory. But gradually I stopped qualifying my title and started simply introducing myself as a garment factory manager. In this article, I reflect on why I made this personal shift and how it pushed me to reflect on the ways that racism and stereotypes are embedded in conventional approaches to sustainable fashion. I'm a white female millennial with Dutch and American parents. About five years ago, I went from a bleeding heart liberal with a degree in human rights to a garment factory manager in Cambodia. I thought that if I wanted to be effective in sustainable fashion, I needed to better understand production. Initially, I really struggled with the label garment factory manager. I felt the need to qualify it, both to myself and to friends, mostly white, left-leaning liberals back home. For example, I would say to people that I was the manager of a sustainability-minded factory. It was somehow important to point out and defend my positioning as quote-unquote good guy. But the more I inhabited the role of factory manager, the more I realized that the sustainability challenges that factory managers face are part of a larger system of asymmetrical power relations. I realized that I'd internalized certain racially rooted stereotypes about who a factory manager is and their role as quote-unquote bad guy in sustainability. I had a blind spot. Mazarine Banaji, a Harvard psychologist and co-author of the book Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People, researches how when you pair two things together over and over, they come to be associated with one another. Bread goes with butter. Leaders are male. Nurses are female. Repeatedly throughout my life, the title factory manager was paired with sweatshop. Banaji suggests that when people are asked to reverse these associations, they struggle. Experiencing this difficulty is what allows people to understand how deeply ingrained culture and its implicit biases really are. Gradually, I stopped qualifying my title. When introducing myself to people at home, I was often met with a lot of follow-up questions seeking to gauge whether I fell in the quote-unquote good guy camp or the quote-unquote bad guy camp. What did I think about unions? What kind of wages did my employees earn? Our unconscious perception of the brown factory manager out to make a quick buck pervades the way we approach sustainability. And while there are certainly factory managers out there doing bad things for which they must be held accountable, this implicit bias prevents us from reflecting critically on how we created this system. And it prevents us from seeing and trusting the factory managers out there who are sustainable fashion allies. So where should the story of sustainable fashion begin? As primarily white sustainability advocates, engaging critically with our role in creating a fundamentally unjust system that disproportionately disenfranchises people of color requires reconsidering where the story should start. The fashion industry has a smattering of original sins from which we could choose to start our story. 
But for the purposes of this article, I'd like to select just one, the decision to outsource production. Brands were the first to outsource production, to stop doing it themselves and or move it to external companies in far-flung corners of the world throughout the 80s and 90s. The explanation usually focuses on cheaper wages elsewhere, combined with improvements in logistics and communications technology. But these narratives are incomplete. Another critical reason for moving production offshore had to do with unstable demand. Unstable demand is hard for production facilities to manage, no matter who's doing it. It's hard to give workers job security when you don't know if the t-shirt you've designed is going to be fashionable this season. It's risky to invest in fabrics and raw materials up front when you don't know yet how many pieces you're going to sell. It's hard to pay workers living wages when consumer demand rewards cheaper and cheaper products. The decision to outsource production was at least in part a way for brands to insulate themselves from the risk inherent to unstable demand, inherent to the fickle business of fashion. It was a way of coping with the catch-22 of having just the right amount of capacity to successfully deal with busy periods and slow periods, good seasons and bad seasons. It was a way to shift inventory onto someone else's books. The risk wasn't eliminated. It was passed down to someone else. And usually, that someone was a person of color in a developing part of the world. In other words, brands comprised primarily of white employees from countries with relative economic might leveraged their power to shift financial risk onto less privileged people of color. The impossible task of balancing safe working conditions, living wages, increased consumer demand for cheaper goods, job security for workers, and the risks inherent to the fashion industry was passed down. From implicit bias to structural racism in sustainable fashion. Meanwhile, sustainable fashion advocates often start the story of sustainable fashion in the 90s with the Nike sweatshop exposés. This was the critical moment that led to growing consumer awareness, a proliferation of social compliance initiatives, and the birth of sustainability departments within brands and retailers. Nike initially responded to the sweatshop accusations by denying them. In 2001, Nike director Todd McKeon admitted that the initial attitude was, hey, we don't own the factories. We don't control what goes on there. In other words, the problem was external to the brand itself. The problem was unwieldy supply chain partners, or maybe even the complexity of poverty and bad political governance. Either way, he implied it was not the result of Nike's decision to outsource production or the leveraging of their power over more vulnerable people of color throughout the global economy. By the late 90s, Nike began to change its tone. It adopted a code of conduct to govern its suppliers, doing more than 600 factory audits between 2000 and 2004 to assure that its code of conduct was being followed. But the conception of the problem as quote-unquote external remains integral to its communication around the issue even today. For example, today their website says, and I quote, We expect all of our suppliers to share our commitment to respecting the rights of workers, with particular care for the unique vulnerabilities and needs of worker groups such as women, migrants, and temporary workers, and to advancing the welfare of workers and communities, end quote. The problem to be solved, in their view, is one of respect. Factory managers, in other words, suppliers, must learn to respect the rights of workers. 
Another example is the recent Boohoo scandal in 2020. Leicester, the site of the non-compliant suppliers, is in the UK. But Leicester's textile workforce is dominated by its large South Asian immigrant population. In 2018, a Financial Times investigation described the poor working conditions that pervade Leicester's garment sector as an open secret, well known in both the industry and the government. When Boohoo gets away with saying things like, and I quote, we've terminated the contracts with the non-compliant firms, or, and I quote again, we're going to do an independent review into our supply chain, end quote, or, and I quote again, we have nothing to hide, end quote, the subtext is that the job of the brand is to do due diligence, to weed bad suppliers, which are usually of color, out. There's no need for self-reflection or inward-facing scrutiny. Another example is the Dutch Agreement on Sustainable Garments and Textiles. Their website states that, quote, many businesses in the Netherlands have outsourced their production to countries outside the European Union. These are countries where human rights, worker health and safety, environmental protection, and animal rights may be at risk, end quote. Again, the problem is externalized. The problem is poor governance in developing countries, and the brand's responsibility is due diligence. Primarily white sustainability advocates, myself included, have internalized our implicit biases about men of color, about the factory manager as the quote-unquote bad guy. And then we built a sustainability industry around those biases. That's why sustainability initiatives today often look outward instead of inward, focused on control, on reining in unwieldy and unethical supply chain partners, on due diligence. This is white saviorism at its most perverse. Brands comprised of mostly white employees leverage their power to shift financial risks to groups of people with less power, usually people of color. When that resulted in human rights abuses that primarily white consumers couldn't cope with knowing about, the explanation weaponized stereotypes about those same people of color to shift the blame as well. The intersection of implicit bias and power. We can't talk about implicit biases without also talking about power. As the novelist Chimamanda Adichie articulates so well, I quote, Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person, end quote. I want to pivot back to my journey with the title Garment Factory Manager. After I stopped qualifying my title to friends and acquaintances back home, I usually dealt with their follow-up questions with textbook answers that satisfied the checkboxes that their liberal assumptions were looking for me to fill. Yes, I thought labor unions were important. Yes, my staff earned living wages. But once an exchange with a particularly self-righteous dinner companion led me to take a different tack. I replied that although labor unions made sense in a country with strong rule of law, in countries with corrupt governments like Cambodia, where I was, I wasn't sure whether they always represented workers' best interest. I watched the discomfort, outrage, and judgment pass over my dinner companion's face. This comment was enough to vilify me. She quickly changed the subject. I possessed the language and vocabulary to defend myself. I was intimately familiar with the stereotypes I was up against. I had the power, privilege, and protection of not being reducible to a singular narrative. And still, all it took was one comment about labor unions to put me in the quote-unquote bad guy camp. 
I've been reconsidering this anecdote recently because together with my formidable co-founder, Jesse Lee, we've just launched a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. The podcast is focused on sharing underrepresented voices across the fashion supply chain. For example, factory managers, industrial engineers, third-party inspection companies, freight forwarders, and so on. I live in fear of inadvertently enabling listeners to fill in the blanks about our guests with this single story of factory managers, with their implicit biases. If one comment is all it took to vilify me, how can we do justice to our guests who usually don't have the power and protection of many stories? For example, during one conversation, a factory manager of color proudly told Jesse about opening a canteen in his factory because his workers were unable to afford nutritious meals. Later, over dinner with a radical left-leaning female friend from Europe, Jessie shared this anecdote. Her friend was quick to point out that instead of offering free lunch, the factory manager should have paid wages that allowed his workers to buy their own food. And that might be true, but it's also incomplete. Perhaps the purchasing practices of the brand did not allow for paying higher wages to the employees. How much cost pressure was the factory under? What kind of lead times did it have? Did it benefit from committed sales forecasts? What were the payment terms? How was risk and reward distributed between the factory and the brand? While factory managers should not be automatically absolved of responsibility, it's unfair to locate this responsibility with them without also considering these questions. These issues are multi-layered. Power is always relative. Factory managers have power relative to workers, but brands have power relative to their suppliers. We must be willing to contend not only with how we, as sustainability advocates, might be perpetrators ourselves, but also how the lines that delineate victims and perpetrators might not always be so clear-cut. Sometimes people might be both. And that's why it's a problem that the only factory manager narrative to which consumers and sometimes even industry insiders have access to is the sweatshop expose. It's incomplete. It's a story mediated and narrated to the public by brands filtered through the racial biases that pervade the industry's approach to sustainability. It obscures the very asymmetrical power relations between the brands and the suppliers, enabling brands to escape public scrutiny of their buying practices while the social responsibility spotlight is placed firmly on factories. So where do we go from here? As sustainability advocates, we must turn conventional knowledge about what sustainability requires on its head. We must radically reimagine equal partnership. We must be proactive in dismantling implicit and racially rooted biases against factory managers, both for ourselves and for consumers. Precisely because of their power, brands have a duty to create space for supplier voices to be heard. As the gatekeepers to the fashion supply chain, brands have a responsibility to give supplier voices a seat at the table, whether internally or facing consumers. Brands have a moral obligation to ensure that their employees and their customers do not rely on implicit biases to explain fashion's sustainability woes, and to talk openly about their own role in creating this system. They must examine their internal decision-making structures, their standard operating procedures, the rules that codify an unequal distribution of risk and reward. 
Brands must also compensate suppliers fairly for their insight and expertise and look inward at their own purchasing practices. They must stop treating suppliers as liabilities to be minimized instead of as assets worth investing in. Just as people of color in the United States don't bear the burden of educating white people or fixing a racist system that they didn't create, neither should the factory manager have to bear the indignity of being labeled the problem. And yet, too often, our approach to sustainability relies on this very assumption. As Dina Simmons, author of the book White Rules for Black People, puts it, and I quote, don't ask the wounded to do the work, end quote. Instead, we must start by looking inward. Thanks for listening to Manufactured. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more. 